Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Oh! Wonderful shot by Lennox Lewis! A right hand by Holyfield! By Buster Douglas! Look at this! He's knocked by Tyson down for the first time in his career! But unfortunately, it'll never happen. Crunch! Punches! And punches! And it is over! I think it's gonna be over! say there seems an element of genuine hate between these two Ambrose. For sure. I don't hate the man. Just imagine if you bought a ticket. Stop it, Greg. You can stop it any time. Castillo's in trouble. Weak steps in and the fight is over. Oh! Welcome, fight fans, to Legendary Nights, Season 3, Episode 1. The tale of Michael Mora versus George Foreman. And what a tale and a story this is. One of the moments in boxing that will always be remembered and long live in the history of the sport. A 45-year-old George Foreman becoming a world heavyweight champion. And this episode is telling you the story of how this all came about. How the fight came to fruition what actually happened in the fight and the breakdown and the aftermath of these two fighters' careers. This is something that sticks out in my memory, Johnston, as a legendary night on its own and it is part of the Legendary Night's HBO series from 2003 and I remember watching that very fondly and looking back and then looking back at the fight and doing the preparation for this episode, it brought everything back again and it was just a great moment in boxing for the sport that will long live in its history. It will, uh, absolutely will. It's, it's, a, it's a significant moment in boxing history. George Foreman coming back after a, such a long hiatus from the ring, 10 years out of the ring, to then come back and, and potentially, in his mind, he wanted to go and win a world title. It was laughed at. It was laughed at. It was told it's never going to happen. You're an old man and we're going to go into all this. But he stuck by his way, stuck by his guns, and he continued to pers- persevere with it. He fouled a couple of times. We'll go into those fights. And then obviously this one 
in particular is a great night for George. Look, it's it's not an absolute slugfest. Let's get it right. If anyone ever seen it, it's not like a Morelles Barrera. It's not a Ward Gatti. What it is, is very significant and there's a great story behind it. And that's one thing we're going to try and do with our legendary nights is make it a great tale for you all. So we're going to go into the interwinding road of how these two ended up in the ring together. And we're going to start, of course, with George, because George's career started way back when, way before Michael Moore's, of course. So we're kind of following up a little bit on our career profile on George here. And we're going to talk a little bit about him first before we bring in Michael Moore. Now, going back to 1977 and after losing to Jimmy Young and having a spiritual epiphany, George Foreman announced through a friend that he's going to quit boxing. And he said, I wrote a letter to ABC re-signing my new contract as a colour commentator alongside Howard Cassell. Some of that was my discomfort at being seen in public after my exposure on the television show, which was reported in the news. Mostly I believe that boxing no longer held a place in my life. Boxing had been a funnel for my hatred. To knock a guy out, I needed to psych myself into a state of viciousness. But that George Foreman didn't exist anymore. For the next 10 years, George served as a preacher in his hometown of Houston, Texas. 13 years after losing his heavyweight title to Muhammad Ali, George began his impossible quest to regain it. And George said, Some people would say that my returning to professional boxing at age 37 after 10 years away was as foolish as believing that Elvis was still alive. They said that I could never hope to get back in fighting shape, that the muscle memory I needed to throw a professional punch was lost forever, and that what I aimed to do couldn't be done, because, well, it hadn't been done. Initially, George approached Butch Lewis about becoming his promoter, but Butch told him, this is a young man's sport, you should leave it alone. Everyone George spoke to all told him the same response as Butch, Even his wife, Joan, feared that he would die in the ring. However, Joan did later admit that she was more than worried about losing her husband's new personality to the world of boxing. But he promised her that that would never happen. And so with with Joan's backing and with the desire to make a difference, he decided to follow his heart. And George said, I'd left boxing. Boxing hadn't left me. And now I wanted it back because of the best reason. I couldn't allow 15-year-old boys to go shooting people and ended up in jail. I had to help these kids. I wasn't an accountant or a welder or a golfer. Boxing was what I knew and there was no time to learn anything else. So with no promoter, George went at it alone, using his own money to fund training, sparring partners and match his own opponents. He later admitted that going at it alone probably helped him because other big-time promoters would have looked to have matched him against better opposition earlier, whereas he, he could be his own man and he could take his time. Now, the first thing to do was to get fit and get examined before approaching a boxing commission. And he said, to remove any of my own doubts, I submitted a battery and a half of tests at the University of Texas MD Anderson Hospital. Tests, I doubt, even the state athletic commissions knew about. Nothing like them had existed 10 years before. They took pictures of my head and lungs and my circulatory system and brain 
measured the stress of my heart after exertion and checked my neurological functions. After two days, I was pronounced fit. Now, George may have been declared fit, but he now weighed over 300 pounds. So when he tried on his old boxing gear, none of it actually fit. And he actually recalled that not even my boots, I guess all the extra weight had made my feet larger too. He jokingly told Joan, man, this stuff has shrunk. (laughs) Ironically, it was Joan that acted as his first trainer. George said that she would drive me five, eight or 10 miles away and drop me off to run home. It started with running, then turned into hitting the heavy bag with his brother Sonny. Half an hour with right hands, half an hour with left hooks and half an hour of jabs. Stamina was always George's problem when he was younger. So he came up with a plan to work on that by skipping backward along the inside perimeter of the ring, first one way and then the other. And he recalled, I'd do it for the equivalent of 10 rounds, 10 three-minute stints with one minute in between. It's incredibly hard to do. Then I'd jump rope for two three-minute rounds. In fact, George admitted that no trainer had ever pushed me this hard. George decided he needed a proper trainer, so he hired Charlie Shipes, who had just been released from prison for distributing narcotics. It worked in both their favours because Charlie needed work and money following his prison release. George couldn't pay a huge amount, and more importantly, they had a history together. The next thing to do was find a boxing commission that would grant him a licence. Instead of selecting a state commission, that were lenient, he chose the strictest one possible. George approached the California Athletic Commission and passed their mandatory test, but at a hearing in San Diego, the commission's doctor insisted that his age was the problem, and George recalled, the state didn't want my blood on its hands. There was no way he could reconsider, not even after seeing the results of my tests. After the official refusal, George spoke to a lawyer who represented the state attorney general's office and he asked him why he wanted to fight again. George's response was, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. I love that. And following their meeting, he actually recommended that George get his license. And the man said that this man has satisfied all your requirements. There's nothing wrong with him. You should just go ahead and give him a license. Now, with a license... George made the public announcement of his return to the ring and mainly the sports writers laughed. They laughed the loudest. Sports journalist Logan Hobson actually recalled jumping on the bandwagon of those sports writers and he remembered when his comeback started, I was one of those guys saying, oh, come on, please. Some guys will do anything for a buck. Even Sugar Ray Leonard remembered George Foreman's, his physique, he said, was not as appealing as it was many years ago. Although George was given a stand innovation onto the ring before the first bell, he had a body complex. And he said, what scared me the most was taking off the robe and parading around the ring without a shirt. Well, he had a fight and the fight was against a guy against uh, Steve Zulski. And the ref stopped that fight on, on March 9, 1987 in four rounds because he was basically bored of reminding a reluctant George to box. George basically kept saying he was a bit worried he's hurting him and he he was sort of telling him, 
you know, I don't want to hurt him. He could, he said his jabs were hurting the refs. Just box, just box. In the end, he just sort of just said, look, he give up the fight, basically. He said, look, have the fight. Well, in the end, George Foreman, he earned £21,000 for his night's work. But many were critical, especially Boxing News, who actually wrote that George Foreman looked fat and slow. Even the California Boxing Commission chief, Ken Gray, was an impressive spectacle either and wanted to see an improvement from him if they were going to allow him to come his comeback to continue. And he said, we approved George on the basis of him being in a good physical state. But before he fights again, I think I would have to talk to him about his weight first and also about facing a stronger opponent. My understanding is that he intends to do both and that's fine, but we just want to be sure we don't have a repeat of this. Around this time, a young Michael Mora, who had been training under his granddad Henry Smith in Mon Valley, decided to relocate so he could fine-tune his clear potential. The Cronk Gym in Detroit was identified, so he moved there on a permanent basis while he prepared for the year's Olympic trials under the tutelage of Emmanuel Stewart. A few months before his permanent move to the Cronk Gym, Mora then, a lanky southpaw, was assigned by Emmanuel Stewart to be a key sparring partner for middleweight contender Darnell Knox. Knox was preparing for a title shot against Michael Nunn, and by Stewart's own account, Knox was overmatched badly against Mora in sparring. In fact, Stewart declared that Knox got such a bad beating at the hands of Mora that he was depleted when he faced Nunn, which was part of the reason why he lost in four rounds and never fought again. Mora was never matched in sparring against the aged Tommy Hearns, not because he felt that Mora would do the same to the hitman, but because they would have damaged each other and hindered their progressions. Mora recalled in the 2003 HBO Legendary Nights documentary, When you fought inside the gym, you gained a lot of notoriety, recognition on what you did in the ring, and I kicked a lot of arse in there. Now, due to kicking a lot of ass, Stewart Mora came to the same conclusion that the amateur boxing route may not suit him after all. And Stewart recalled, We turned in professional in March of 1988, and in December of 1988 on national wide television, he was the new light heavyweight champion of the world. It's incredible. Uh, we'll go into that, of course. But first of all, let's jump back to George Foreman. And he reeled off uh, three knockout victories in July, September and November 1987 against modest opposition with all winning records. Now, desperate to keep the run going, George contacted Bob Arum about a fight in December, but specified that he did not want to be on television yet. I think he was a, still a bit afraid of his body complex at this time. However, the only card he had on offer was a card on ESPN against a guy called Rocky Sikoski. Aram informed George that ratings would be low at this time of the year and not to worry about public exposure. He offered $12,500 for a one-off fight and that he would not offer a free fight deal, which George was happy about. Now, in a small room, in Bullies in Las Vegas, Foreman stopped Zakorski in three rounds and George recalled, Bob jumped into the ring as if I'd won the title. Later, he told me the TV rating set a record for boxing shows. He said he wanted me to sign a free fight deal. George's response was a short and sweet answer. 
quite simply? No. However, he did agree to fight Italian champion Grudo Train on uh, February 1988. And uh, Bob Aaron promised, you do this one for 24 grand and I'm going to move you up each time. The one after for 100,000. Now, the Lewiston Journal actually reported on the train fight. And this is what they wrote. They said Foreman scored his seventh straight victory since returning to the ring last March after a decade of inactivity. He used a stinging left jab to cut Train's face and forced referee Mills Lane to halt the bout at two minutes 39 of the fifth round. After the victory, George said, this guy was my toughest fight yet. This fight extended me more than I expected. He then went on to call out the current heavyweight champion by saying, all I can say is Mike Tyson is sitting in a seat that I'd like to be sitting in. He's the heavyweight champion of the world. One month later, and Mora made his professional debut against Adrian Riggs at Bally's Las Vegas live on ESPN. Mora hurt Riggs with a left uppercut and put him down with a left hook in the first, but was warned following the knockdown for hitting Riggs while he was on one knee. Riggs hit the canvas for a second time in the round from a right hook, forcing the referee Carlos Padilla to wave an end to the fight. Now on March 19th, Foreman was matched against his best opponent since his return to the ring, and that was former cruiserweight world champion Dwight Mohamed Kawe, who was 28-5-1 in the Caesars Palace Sports Pavilion in Las Vegas. Although Kwawe was on the wrong side of his 30s and approaching the end of his career, he had still fought at an elite level as an elite fighter. In fact, the overweight Kwawe did land several shots flush early in the fight, but faded late and finally quit while still on his feet after a foreman left-right combination to the head in the seventh round. Kwawe said after the loss to Foreman, he can punch. I think Tyson could be in a little trouble. One week later, Michael Moore recorded his second knockout victory at the Cobo Arena in Detroit against Bill Lee. In fact, from the summer of 1988 to early November, Moore clocked nine more wins, all by knockout, to go 11-0, with 11 knockouts inside the scheduled distance. Incredibly, by December the 3rd, Moore was handed a world title shot for the inaugural WBO light heavyweight title against Ramsey Hassan, who was 24-5. and five. Into the fight, which was live on NBC, and Mora had sent Hassan on the ropes after a crushing right uppercut to the jaw in the fifth, forcing the referee, Dale Grable, to stop the fight and incredibly giving Michael Mora the WBO light heavyweight title. Incredible. 11-0. 11 knockouts. Now it's 12-0. 12 knockouts. Impressive stuff for Mora and... What can you say? I mean, it was obviously the first ever WBO light heavyweight champion. So some people at the time probably didn't recognize it as well as we do now, but still a great achievement. Now, after the fight, the 21-year-old Mora actually reflected on his performance and he said he was a top-rated guy and I wasn't going to take anything away from him. I was ready for this fight. Some shots stung me, but I was never hurt. I wanted to catch him good before I went inside. The knockout punch was a short uppercut. I hit him earlier in the round with it and said, wow, I knew I could use it again. And he does use that again. Uh, it's a devastating uppercut. Now, while 
Mora was picking up his first world title. George Foreman continued his knockout form as well, with six on the bounce to end 1988. During this time, George cut his ties with Bob Arum because the promoter wanted him to change his trainer to Gil Clancy and also bring in other sparring partners. And he also offered a free fight package against tougher opponents, tougher opponents that George didn't have an interest in fighting. George actually recalled his refusal and showed loyalty. He said, I didn't like this plan and wouldn't go along with it. These guys are my friends. They understand what I'm trying to accomplish and I want them to go along with me. He was adamant that he wasn't ready for the top guys yet. So Aram got mad and actually told sport writers that he should quit boxing, stating that he doesn't want to fight anyone. George made it clear, I didn't come back to make big money. I'm making enough now for what I set out to do. Anyway, I'm going to get the big money in time. I came back to be champ and I'm going to do it my way. Good for him. Not wanting to go on it completely alone, he actually hired local promoters in and around the areas in his small hall venues. And Ron Weathers was actually one of those he worked with more closely because he had a better understanding of what George was trying to achieve and the path that he had set out. The following year, 1989, George fought five times. The most memorable of the bouts came against a highly regarded puncher who'd beaten some excellent fighters and given others a hard time, and that was Burt Cooper, who was 20-4. and four. The fight took place at the Pride Pavilion in Phoenix, Arizona, which was aired on US Network main events in June, with George collecting a nice round figure of $50,000. George landed several hard shots to the body in the first round that hurt Cooper, and in round two, he continued to work the body and landed a solid right to the face that stung Cooper. In the end, Cooper remained on his stool and did not answer the bell to begin the third round, to the dismay of the crowd of 2,000 who booed loudly. George Foreman then decided to go into a We Want Tyson chant while the fans continued to boo Cooper. Now, Burt Cooper later gave a brilliant excuse for his poor showing when he said that he had hooked up with a pair of identical twin sisters several days before the fight and began a non-stop binge of alcohol, cocaine, and sex. And he said, I didn't sleep for three days. They set me up. Cooper said he wasn't sure who'd set him up, but he was told it was Archie Moore, who was apparently associated with George Foreman. Now, to kickstart 1989, Michael Mora made two successful defences of his WBO light heavyweight crown in January and February, with a second-round knockout of Victor Claudio in Michigan and a six-round stoppage of Frankie Swindell in Pennsylvania. However, on March 29th, it was not his in-ring accomplishments that made the newspapers. Mora was arrested for his participation in a street brawl in the town of Chalaral, across the bridge from his hometown, Monessen. So the LA Times actually reported on this incident in more, more detail, and they said that Police said they filed charges today against a WBO light heavyweight champion, Michael Moore, after a street ball in which one man was injured. So Lieutenant Ted Zelinski said that Mora and Lloyd Aldrich were both charged with assault and disorderly conduct. And Mora was actually charged with aggravated assault because he was a professional boxer. Now, Christian Williams, who's also 21 of Bell Vernon, actually suffered a cut to his left eyelid 
which that required seven stitches. Zelinsky said Williams and a friend were walking in Chowroy early Saturday morning when a group, including Mora and Aldrich, confronted them. Two other men, including part-time Donora police officer Chris Elks, who was one of several witnesses who identified Mora 21, tried to defend Williams and his friend. So, in a plea bargain, the charges of aggravated assault and disorderly conduct were dropped and Mora was actually sentenced to 18 months probation and 100 hours of community service. The incident also cost him nearly $250,000. I bet he wished never threw that punch. So the following month, Mora made his third defence of the title, the WBO light heavyweight title, against undefeated Fred Delgado, who was 16-0 in Detroit. Now, you could say that Mora committed legal assault on the Puerto Rican in just one single round, knocking him down twice and was battering him until the fight was correctly stopped by the referee. Coincidentally, Mora then ended up on a Bob Arum card on June 25th at the convention centre in Atlantic City for a fourth defence against the number one contender and former world champion Leslie Stewart. Mora continued his incredible knockout streak of 15 wins and 15 KOs live on CBS Sports Saturday, twice putting his opponent down in the eighth. But after the second knockdown, Stewart got smashed up until the referee stepped in and stopped any further punishment. It was a pounding and, well, what can you say about Mora? Devastating in the ring and pretty devastating outside of it by the sounds of things. <laughs> yeah, certainly devastating outside of it as well. Now, to complete a very successful year inside the ring, Mora made two more defences of his title, brutally knocking out Jeff Thompson in one round and then stopping Mike Cedillo in six rounds. The new decade started the same as the old one, ended for Mora, with a ninth-round stoppage of the undefeated Marcellus Allen and a devastating knockout in the very first round against Mario Mello. It was a left hook to the body that sent Mello down squirming in pain, he spat out his mouthpiece and made no attempt to get up as the referee reached a count of 10. Now, one month before Mora clocked up his 19th knockout victory in as many fights, George Foreman was given a decent name on paper, but someone who had been out of the ring for three years, and that was Jerry Cooney, who was 28-2. and two. Cooney's last fight was a fifth-round knockout defeat against Michael Spinks in 1987, but Ron Weathers managed to convince Cooney to come out of retirement now, we're sure that the $1 million guarantee to fight a 41-year-old was more than enough to get Cooney back in the ring. Bob Arum and Top Rank were back on the scene, with the fight being hosted by Caesars Atlantic City at the convention centre. The fight was billed as the Preacher versus the Puncher, and critics called it the Geezers at Caesars, and it was in front of a crowd of 12,581 live on closed-circuit TV and pay-per-view. The fight was actually fun while it lasted. Cooney took the first and hit Foreman harder than he'd ever been hit. He testified this himself and he said, I remember two blows that taught me what it's like to be hit that hard. Neither Muhammad Ali nor Jimmy Young delivered them. One had been courtesy of Ron Lyle. The other came that night from Jerry Cooney. Well, unfortunately for Cooney, he did not press home that finish when Foreman was actually on wobbly legs, and he admitted that as well. Instead, he tried to go for the finish in the following round, by which point Foreman had obviously recovered. And George remembered that I hit 
him some damaging shots, the best combinations I've thrown in years. Put him down. When he rose at six for a few more, down and out he went. George also believes that he had a premonition of the fight result, saying, I dream that I knocked out Jerry Cooney in the second round. The public, the press and the broadcast media had all now sided with George. He was now marketable again and the promoters chased him with offers. But he refused to buckle with a large check being waved in his face. And he said, I wasn't just a boxer. I was the rainmaker of a charitable foundation. Every penny I went, went to the George Foreman Community Centre. Now, while Foreman and Mora continued to plan their routes through the respective divisions, the heavyweight division was actually blown wide open on February 1990 when Buster James Douglas knocked out Mike Tyson in Tokyo. We've done a legendary night on it. Go and check it out. Now, when Douglas then lost to Holyfield in October, Foreman got himself in position for his first world title shot since 1974. He fought four more times that year, winning all by knockouts in the fourth uh, second, third and first rounds and then signed to fight the new heavyweight champion Evander Holyfield who was undefeated 25 and 0 on April 19, 1991 at the Atlantic City Convention Centre. His wife Joan said to George Foreman it's coming true. The dream's coming true for us. But before we get into the Foreman Holyfield fight let's round off Michael Moore's last two fights in 1990. He made an 8th and 9th defence of his World Light Heavyweight title in his normal destructive style, stopping Jim McDonald in the 3rd and Danny Stonewalker in the 8th, which would be his last defence at Light Heavyweight. After knocking out every opponent that he had faced, Mora had nothing left to prove in the division. With all the other champions like Dennis Andres, Jeff Harding, Virgil Hill and Charles Williams clearly deciding not to risk their titles and their records against Michael Mora, Rather than stick around at 175, he decided to skip the cruiserweight division completely and move straight up to the heavyweight division, facing off against guys that were almost 80 pounds heavier than he was. Emmanuel Stewart did try to convince Mora that he should steer clear of the heavyweights, but he was adamant and Stewart said, Michael Mora was definitely one of the greatest light heavyweights in the history of boxing. Even with their difference of opinion, Stewart remained in his corner for seven fights in the new division and his first was against Terry Davis on the undercard of Foreman Holyfield stopping the Terminator in just two rounds to go 22-0 with 22 knockouts. Now on to the main event of that evening, April 19th, 1990 at the convention centre in Atlantic City and it was George Foreman's chance to win a world heavyweight title against the undefeated Holyfield in a fight that was co-promoted by Dan Duver's main events and Bob Arum's top rank, and billed as the Battle of the Ages, and marked the launching of TVKO, which is now known as, or was previously known as, HBO Pay-Per-View. So it was Donald Trump, of all people, that paid $11 million for the fight, $1 million when the contract was signed on January 12th to Arum and Duver, and a further $2.5 million on February the 9th. The remaining 7.5 million would come from the live gate receipts. But a week later, the contract was amended after the Parisian Gulf War started and with an unusual provision added that said 
the fight could be postponed due to an act of God or war. Shortly before the 2.5 million was due, Trump invoked the provision and tried to re- renegotiate the fee from 11 million down to about five or six million. Typical Trump tactics. And Trump said that the war was preventing travelers, especially from the Middle East, from flying to Atlantic City. And this caused friction among the promoters and Aaron clarifying that if there is an act of God or war that forces the fight to be cancelled, then the promoters have the right to postpone the fight, not him. Well, Aaron and Duva then threatened to move the fight to Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas, but they were eventually able to reach a deal with Trump. It was announced on February 11 that Trump had paid the promoters two and a half million dollars that he owed and the fight would stay in Atlantic City. The source close to Trump's bankers explained the complications. What really happened was that his creditors took a look at the deal and got edgy, and they made him try for a better deal. Well, that is nothing new. But still to this day, Holyfield went into the fight as a three-to-one betting favourite and was guaranteed a larger share of the purse at twenty million, with Foreman guaranteed twelve and a half. Pat Putman of Sports Illustrated wrote this about the fight. Because of his age and immense girth, the heavy punching foreman was expected only to tease the hopes of his faithful and then depart quietly in about the fifth or sixth round. The audience at the convention centre expected an execution. Foreman gave them a war. The fight was a classic battle of two big men taking turns pushing each other to the brink of disaster only to be saved by their tremendous courage and strong chins. Putman continued with his report and he said, As an estimated 10 million fans watched on TV, Foreman seriously hurt Holyfield in the second and seventh rounds, and in other rounds appeared to be but one blow away from recapturing the title he had held from January 1973 until October 1974. After nine rounds, the marvellous old man battered but Unyielding, still had a chance of winning by decision. Foreman came out of Houston, Texas with a dream. For 36 minutes, he was Holyfield's nightmare. Unfortunately, it was not the fairy tale ending for George, who lost by a unanimous decision. After a fight where George reminded the world he was not just fighting to make up the numbers, he also reminded them he was not in the hurt game for just the money either. And he said, I'm not fighting for money. You've got to have a focus. You just fight for money, you get hurt. You focus on the title, you'll naturally make money doing it. We've kept our dignity and there was no retreat. It's honor. Every young man out there, 35, 40 and 50, can be proud of himself. I had him out in the last round, but he was really hurt and I didn't want to hurt him. I took pity on him because I thought I was ahead in points. But realistically, we've proven that the age 40, not 50, not 60, it's not a death sentence after all. Well, you had the whole house pulling for you tonight, George. That's for sure. So George, the, let, George, let me... We're still our home and we fight on. <laughs> let me ask you something. Did you surprise yourself at all uh, with all the critics you had? Did you feel that uh, you were going to put on this brilliant of a performance yourself? Well, it was a good champion I was in the ring with. It was a good fight for that, for that kid. He fought real good. He proved that his family, I'm sure his family was behind him. My family was behind me. We had a good prayer. All the young men, we never pray to win. We pray to go out there and do our best. And when a man gets a chance and an opportunity for life, liberty, and a pursuit of happiness, and he does his best, what more can you ask for? George Foreman did not return to the ring until December the 7th in Reno against Jimmy Ellis, who he battered in three rounds. In the second, Ellis was so dazed, he returned to the wrong corner, 
When the round ended, his trainer had to get him and lead him back to the correct corner. <laughs> oh dear. Not quite to be there for George, but tremendous finish against Jimmy Ellis. Poor Jimmy. Well, Mora finished 1991 with three victories by way of knockout against Levi Billups, Alex Stewart and Bobby Crabtree. Now, the Stewart win was the standout of them all in a heavyweight war that left Mora's nose bleeding within a minute of the first round. Stewart cut over his left eye and dropped twice. The crowd of about 8,000 watched on as Mora got hit with a series of hard right hands in the second which left him shaken, but he eventually found a way and stopped his valiant opponent in the fourth. The following month, on August 4th, Mora was arrested for hitting a police officer this time. Mora was adamant at first, saying, I never touched him. The officer, Carl Fron Zaglio, testified that he went to, the, went to a house call due to a disturbance and ended up suffering seven cracked teeth, temporary loss of hearing, a slight concussion, and a displaced disc after being punched in the jaw by Mora. One punch did all that. Well, well, Fonzaglio said that he was hospitalized for three days and was under doctor's care and could not return to work because of his injuries. They had a hearing, and after the hearing, Mora, tw now 24, shook hands with him, and he apologized to the officer, saying, I'm sorry for what happened. So I never touched him to it. I'm sorry what happened. <laughs> Fonzaglio, well, he told reporters that the apology was kind of late, Look at my face. The officer's jaw was swollen at the time of this interview. Now, it had all began, this actual incident, was when Mora actually made a disturbance during a basketball game in the Mon Eastern Civic Centre before going to his mother's home. After arriving at his mother's home, a source said um, that Mora snapped, beat a porch row with a chair, punched a window and a mailbox, and then punched Mr. Officer Fonzaglio in the jaw causes all that damage. So, a bit of a, bit of a trouble time there for, for Michael Mora. Well, it's more than once, isn't it? Outside of the ring now where he's had, a, yeah. he's had an incident. Now, back to the ring and Mora fought twice in 1992 against Mike White in February going the 10-round distance for the first time in his career. Although he did floor White in the final round, the bell saved him in Caesars Palace, Las Vegas. A month later, he faced off again Everett Martin in Michigan where he was floored in the third round for the first time in his career, but recovered to take a unanimous decision for the second time. But the pick of the bunch was an excellent fight for the WBO heavyweight title against Burt Cooper at the Trump Taj Mahal in Atlantic City, New Jersey on May the 15th. The fight was televised on TVKO pay-per-view under the promotional banner of main events, and it started with a bang. Mora hit the deck in the first, as did Cooper. In a start that was reminiscent of the intensity and pace of the first three minutes of Hagler Hearns. Into the third, and Mora was down a second time before he regained his composure and finished off the former World Championship challenger in the fifth round with a blistering left uppercut. All right, I'm here with Michael Moore, the, no, the new WBO heavyweight champion of the world. First off, how does it feel to be world champ, Michael? Feels good. It's going to sink in later. First of all, I want to thank God, my Lord, my Savior. Chief Knox, I did it, man. All of Detroit. Fucking right, man. It's over with. All right, now let me ask you something, Michael. You had a strategy of sitting on the ropes. I can't believe that that was a manual steward strategy for you to sit on the ropes. Well, I know, and I, and, and I was commenting on that during the broadcast. Why were you doing it? Uh, I have some feelings why you were, but I want to hear it from you. Because I can see shots better. Hey, 
and I see him on the outside picking my shots, and uh, I came through. Bert's a tough guy. Take your hat off to Mr. Cooper. It was a good fight. He had me hurt a couple times, but I came right back. Now, it was your strategy. Did you think your strategy was failing you when you got knocked down in the first round? And I said, did you think your strategy was failing you when you got knocked down and were taking some good shots on the ropes? I couldn't take anything away from Bert. I mean, he come out to try to fight, and I was just the strongest. Thank the Lord, my Savior, boy, came through. What were you thinking when you got knocked down in that first round? Were you were you aware of what was going on, or were you on Queer Street for a minute there? Nah, I was. I guess I was hurt a little. But this is boxing. You're going to get hurt. I mean, I went down. Sign of a good fighter. Come right back up and win the fight. Do you feel all the confidence in the world in yourself now as a heavyweight? Does this prove to you that you beat a man that took Evander Holyfield seven rounds to knock out, took you five, and a man that had time to train for you? Do you feel confident in yourself? I feel confidence. I always had confidence in myself because I'm a strong-minded person. Some water, please. And uh, I just went in there and I did it. Mori became the first Southpaw to win a world heavyweight title in the history of the sport. And the fight was named KO Magazine Fight of the Year in 1992. Following the victory, Mora moved out of his trainer and surrogate father's house in Detroit, Emmanuel Stewart, and he sold his contractual interests, and Stewart recalled Mora's reasons for doing so, he said. By the time that Michael Mora had begun fighting as a heavyweight, he had also made changes in his mental makeup. He wanted to do things more his way. Regardless of what you would tell him, he wanted to prove you wrong bit of a bad move and I think you can sort of see when he's out of the ring and uh, you can see he's, he's, he's although he's won a world heavyweight title there's a bit of trouble there for Mora clearly uh, I think it's evident before Mora actually captured that title George Foreman took on a mutual opponent in his sole fight of 1992 against Alex Stewart at the Thomas and Max Center in Las Vegas George picked up a handsome five million dollars again but he had to work for his dough after knocking Stewart down twice in the second round. Rather than finishing off his wounded opponent, Foreman openly admitted that he went easy. And this is what he said. He said, I began hitting him on the tip of his nose. When I asked the referee to stop the fight, he refused. So I backed up and Stewart began swinging shots at me. My face took some hard props and swelled. My nose bled. While I still won a clear decision, some people in boxing claimed I should stop. Not only had I lost my killer instinct, but now I was taking beatings too. I reminded myself that such speculation was part of the boxing game. It didn't matter as long as I knew what I was doing. Back to Mora, who, following the departure with Stewart, they, he basically decided to vacate his WBO title now. And this was because he wanted, he, he wanted to move up in the other sanctioning bodies. He wanted to be ranked higher in the other bodies. And if he held that title, he wouldn't have been able to do so, apparently. So he also turned to a new trainer, Tony Ayala, of all people. Not Tony Ayala, but it's Tony Ayala Senior in their one fight together against Billy Wright in a fight that ended inside two rounds. Mora clearly was not happy with Ayala. Mora changed trainer again and began working under George Benton and Lou Duva for the whole of 1993. In January of 1993, George made light work of the highly regarded South African fighter Pierre Coetzer at the Reno Sparks Convention Center in front of a crowd of about 6,000. Foreman knocked Coetzer down in the fourth round and then was heard yelling at referee Joe Cortez to stop the fight. But it continued until the eighth when the South African was floored again. He got up and was allowed to continue 
but Cortez decided to stop the fight after a few more punches. Now the following month, and it was the turn of Michael Mora live on ABC Worldwide of Sports under the main events banner to continue his assault on another world title. First up was James Bone Crusher Smith at the Showboat Hotel and Casino in Atlantic City in a fight that was certainly one-way traffic. Mora was able to box his way past his courageous old-timer who didn't pose much of a threat, but he was too stubborn and experienced to be knocked out as Mora took a unanimous decision. On April 27th, 1993, Mora took a rematch against Frankie Swindell in Michigan, but the fight ended in an anticlimax after an accidental headbutt halted proceedings. It probably should have been declared a no contest rather than a technical knockout win for Mora, but the referee believed Swindell, who gave up after getting butted in the right eye, could have continued. Now back to George Foreman, and his win over Pierre Coatsat led him to a fight in June against a certain Tommy Morrison, 36-1, and one, done a career profile on Tommy, by the way, for the WBO title, which had been vacated, of course, by Michael Mora. So initially, they probably could have fought a little bit sooner than they do. The fight was actually promoted by Bob Arum and took place at the Thomas and Max Centre in Las Vegas and was live again on TVKO. Morrison was an incredible 20 years younger than George Foreman and he used his fresher legs to good effect. George recalled that he felt in control of the fight and had Morrison where he wanted him. Late in the fight, I didn't pull the trigger on a lights out combination because I was afraid of doing permanent damage to him. And he had gone too far in the fight to suffer humiliation of a knockout. I respected his grit. Even so, I was the most surprised person in the arena when Morrison got the decision. Bob Arum publicly said after the loss that George should quit. Sports writers said the same. And George remembered they wrote that I looked lackadaisical when used described a boxer. That word's code for old. I mean, we've spoke about this fight, Sean, and I do think Morrison does win it. I think he just does enough. But there probably there was moments in there where I think George could have pushed on and he didn't. So to his credit, you know, he, he keeps saying this. I don't want to hurt the guy. To his damn fall, he lost the fight. Back to Michael. And Michael fought twice more in 1993. A third round knockout of James Pritchard in Atlantic City. And then ended the year with a 10-round decision live on HBO against Mike Evans, which put him in line for a world title shot. And this time it was against Evander Holyfield, who held the WBA and the IBF versions. Lennox Lewis at the time held the WBC at this moment in time. And the WBO had now changed hands yet again and was owned by Michael Bent after he knocked out Morrison in his second defence. Now, instead of getting himself prepared for the fight of his life, Michael Mora made a very bold decision just before the biggest fight of his life. And that was to change his trainer once again. He was unable to find the same balance he had with Stewart when working with George Benton and Lou Duva, who questioned his desire and mentality. Although remaining with main events to promote his fights, Mora's manager, John Davy Moss, found him a new trainer, someone he could trust and rely on again. Teddy Atlas was identified, and he said this of Mora. I heard that he was a guy that would walk out in the middle of sparring, and I said, this is a guy who's just unsure of himself. He had been abandoned by his father. He had been abandoned in certain situations professionally. So he wanted a test to see if you were really going to be there. 
if you weren't going to disappear. Maura liked Teddy's attitude and he remembered. He would push me and I'd push him back. He wasn't taking any shit and neither was I. He was my trainer but also my friend. A person who taught me a lot. I love Teddy. I'm sure he feels the same way about me. But he won't say it because that's his tough guy image. In only their second fight together, they faced their greatest challenge of their collective careers. A heavyweight championship fight against Evander Holyfield, who's now 30-1 at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas on April 22nd, 1994. Holyfield was making his first defence of the WBA and IBF titles after defeating Riddick Bowe in their rematch, and the fight was promoted by Dan Duva of Main Events. The fight was also aired on TV KO in the US, and George Foreman sat on commentary duties with Jim Lampley and Larry Merchant. Sky Sports broadcasted the fight in Britain, and uh, it was Maura's biggest payday to date of $5 million. Holyfield got 12 and was the 2-1 to one favourite, but was aware of the challenge ahead, saying, I have a lot of respect for any man who climbs into the ring, especially the number one contender. Maura's manager, John Davimos, was confident his man could claim the heavyweight title, saying, People think he's been involved in four assault and battery incidents, but it's only three. The fourth will be on Friday. Teddy Atlas had a more sophisticated approach to his comments, saying, Michael always lets his opponents come to him. When they do, he tears them apart because his instincts take over. He has magnificent instincts. Atlas was honest about the task that faced them, but not because of Holyfield, but because of Mora and his mental strength. And he said, every fighter has doubts. Michael and I have talked about it. He has to confront it. It's got nothing to do with the other guy. It's nothing tangible. If you're abandoned as a kid, you're not going to be secure under pressure. Now into the fight, and Holyfield took the first round on two of the judges' scorecards, and it would seem like he took control in the second, especially when he landed a left hook that sent Mora to the canvas. Now, however, this is the interesting part. The scoring across the board was very controversial, with two of the judges scoring it 10-9. So this is a knockdown in the second round. It's going that second round 10-9 to Holyfield rather than 10-8 because they felt that Mora was in such control of the round before the knockdown. And the other judge, Jerry Roth, actually scored the round 10-10. Wow. Incredible. That is incredible. <laughs> you know, I never knew that. That's news to me. I never knew that. Oh, God, the amount of times we talk about poor judging. That, that's, <laughs> oh, that, that's pretty poor, isn't it, really, when you look back on it now. That's a pretty poor showing and a pretty poor effort there, really. Well, of course, Teddy Atlas was unaware of the scoring at the time, but he was clearly favouring Holyfield, and he knew that a pep talk was needed, and he told Moore in the corner, you go in there and you start backing this guy up and you start doing what we trained to do. Otherwise, don't come back to this fucking corner. Do you hear me? <laughs> On the cards, Mora was ahead by a couple of rounds. But from round seven, Holyfield began to force his way back and the race to the final bell was edging closer. Atlas continued to try and get his fighter pumped between rounds by telling Mora, you're lying to yourself because you're going to cry tomorrow. You're lying to yourself and I lied to you because I let you get away with it. He tried everything, even using the famous Angelo Dundee words of, you're blowing it, you're blowing it. You're doing just enough to keep him off 
and hope that he leaves you alone. Even Larry Merchant kept saying on commentary that Maury needed to show more passion and make something happen. Maury did begin to push Holyfield back. Many feel that without Teddy Atlas in the corner that night, Maury would have surrendered his chance of glory. Instead, it was his will that inspired Maury to victory. The result was a majority decision to the new unified heavyweight champion of the world, Michael Mora. Michael Mora, you're the heavyweight champion of the world. Did you believe at the end that they would give you the, the decision even though you were knocked down and it was a fairly close fight? Excuse me, first of all, I'd like to thank the Heavenly Father and that fight was dedicated to my son who was home. Hey, enough. I, everyone talked about the fight going 12 rounds, if I could take it or not. I just had to keep him off of my jab, and I did it. I worked seven, seven and a half hard weeks. I got it. All right, we're going to show you the replay of the knockdown in round two. You describe, or was it round three? You describe what happened. Uh, I remember he stunned me with one. Then he came with a one-two, I think. Because you had the best of it earlier in that exchange yeah. before a left got you That well, was down. a good shot. I you mean, weren't hurt, though, were you? No, sir. I was stunned for a minute. Uh, boxing is a sport where you want to get hit. So. All right. Teddy Atlas was riding you like a yes, jockey through the home stretch in those last three or four rounds, telling you that this was the opportunity of a lifetime. What did that mean to you? That's what he was supposed to do. He pushed me, and we, we worked on that in the gym. And, you know, I like a person like that just to push me like that. Was there anything in particular that he said that rung a bell when he said this is the one opportunity in a lifetime, you've got 12 minutes to go? He told me this was for my son, and I pushed, I pushed hard for my son. After the fight, Larry Merchant asked Mora if there was anything that Teddy Atlas said that rung a bell, and his response was, he told me this is for my son, and I pushed hard for my son. The final scores read 116-112, 115-114, both in favour of Mora, and the third judge had it 114-114 a draw. Now interestingly, if Roth had scored round 2 10-9 for Holyfield, this score would have been 114-114 and Holyfield would have retained the title with a majority draw. It's incredible, isn't it? I mean, it should have been a 10-8. I mean, that's just standard. You could be dominating around and someone gets put down. Either it was late or it's a flash knockdown, you, put, you get put down. It's just how the rules are. I mean... You very rarely see a guy dominating that much where someone's not going to call it a 10-8. It's very, very surprising. Well, due to this very controversial scorecard, Holyfield's manager, Shelley Finkel, filed a protest with the commission, but nothing changed the result, of course. With the rightful protest being uh, pursued and the fact that while in hospital was reported that Holyfield had suffered a heart attack during the fight, Mora's victory was, of course, tainted. Please go check out our Career Profiles episode, episode on Evander Holyfield for more details on that heart problem. And we'll be going into great detail when he's in hospital and, and such. But Mike Borman of Main Events said that the circumstances involving Evander Holyfield after the fight was so unfair on Michael because it made his victory almost shallow. Mora, speaking on the HBO Legendary Night documentary, said they took away from me winning the championship and focused it on him having a heart attack or so-called heart attack. So that that is how these careers have sort of entwined uh, one another. And we're going to now jump in to the build-up between Michael Mora and George Foreman. Now, not long after his victory, Mora was asked if he would be interested in unifying the heavyweight division with a fight against the WBC heavyweight champion, Lennox Lewis. 
But at a news conference in Manhattan, he said, this is Maura, I don't have a burning desire to fight anymore. Yet she had aspirations of quitting the game altogether. But his manager, John Davimos, responded that he's not that wealthy that he can walk away. Now, during the news conference, Maura and Davimos then vented their frustration over TV KO's broadcast on their fight against Holyfield, which they said was biased towards Holyfield. The New York Times reported that Mora told HBO executives that he would not fight on their airtime if George Foreman and Jim Lampley called the action. Obviously, it's before he knew he was going to fight George. Now, the reason behind that statement would have related to George Foreman's bizarre post-fight comments while working as HBO's analyst for the Mora Holyfield fight. On the live broadcast, George actually suggested the result was fixed. And he said himself, I said it to the microphone that something needed to be done about boxing's monkey business scoring system and that the Duvers held too many fighters for the health of boxing. They controlled at least part of both Holyfield and Mora. HBO then chose to remove his comments, as in Foreman's comments, when they rebroadcast the fight a few days later. But you've You've got to, you've, I'm not being funny, but I think we'd be saying the same thing, George, especially with, with the same thing as what George said there, Sean, when it comes down to them terrible scorecards when Mora got put down. I mean, it's, you, you can't help but side with him. It's a knee-jerk reaction to what happened on the night. Of course it was. Now, following his comments, George Foreman said, the Duvers threatened to sue me, and I figured that I'd finally messed with the wrong guys. My boxing career, I decided, was definitely history. After a phone call with Bob Arum, who recalled the call publicly, he said a few days after Michael Moore beat Evander Holyfield, I got a call from George. And I said, George, you can't kid me. You want to fight Michael Moore. And he said, more than anything else in the world, get me that fight. Arum spoke with Moe in events to get the fight made. Moore was promised of a big payday, which led to the new heavyweight champion accepting Foreman's challenge and the fight was scheduled. November the 5th 1994. However the WBA did not rank Foreman as a legitimate contender and refused to sanction the bout. Foreman did sit 8th in the IBF ranking so they did approve the fight but the WBA warned Mora that regardless of what happened he would be stripped of their championship if he went forward with the Foreman fight. At which point Mora's promoters main events announced on August the 10th that the fight was now cancelled. Not long after the fight seemed dead in the water, the New York Times reported, representatives of George Foreman and Top Rank filed a lawsuit in Nevada State Court seeking an injunction to prevent the World Boxing Association from sanctioning any heavyweight championship fight in this country other than Foreman and Michael Mora. The suit also seeks to enjoin Mora, along with his promoters and manager, from participating in any heavyweight fight until their contractual agreement with Foreman has been honoured. The complaint alleges the WBA and others engaged in unlawful age discrimination, bad faith, conduct and collusion in illegally refusing to sanction the November 5th bout between the 46-year-old Foreman and Mora. They're going down the age route. Well... Then on August 21st, 1994, the New York Times printed once again, a judge has given George Foreman approval to fight the WBA and IBF heavyweight champion Michael Mora on November 5th at the MGM 
Grand Garden in Las Vegas, Nevada. District Judge Donald Mosley found Friday that the WBA acted erratically in denying an official sanction of the proposed bout. To fight, Foreman still has to be declared able by physicians for the Nevada State Athletic Commission. So all good, because of course George was declared fit and the fight was signed to take place as originally scheduled on November 5th, 1994. Now it was now seven years since George Foreman made a return to the ring. He had failed in two attempts in recapturing the heavyweight crown, but due to the current politics surrounding the division, he found himself in line for a third shot. Now Jim Lampley explained how Foreman had found himself in contention and he described the current path of the situation at the moment. So Mike Tyson was away in prison. Evander Holyfield and Riddick Bowe were in the process of deteriorating each other and Lennox Lewis were, had lost unexpectedly to Oliver McCall. So the landscape was wide open. Foreman began training for the Moor of Fight at his youth centre just down the street from his church in Houston. And he also began to promote the fight telling the media I'm not saying I'm great I'm nothing near great but this boxing is me it's what I do boxing was invented for me and nobody else there's nobody been born meant to wake up in the morning and put on the bruising suit people say to me how can you come back how can you sacrifice how can you make this struggle this is no struggle this is easy I'm almost 50 but this is what I do all I do this is my business. And when you see me fight, you get a glimpse of my soul. Let me show you. During that same media interview, George picked up a pencil and drew doodles on a piece of paper. This is Ali fighting, dancing, hitting and running. He didn't like to fight. He was giving you a glimpse of his soul. Now here's me. Now here's me hitting Ali until I'm too tired to hit him anymore. In any fight, I'm the one coming forward. I'm the one you must escape. He poked the paper with angry dots, stalking the doodles. The dots get angrier and he shattered the pencil lead and said, what I am is a force of nature. Meanwhile, Teddy Atlas tweaked Mora's training regime to prepare him for the dangerous foreman. He moved Mora into camp in Palm Springs, California, nine weeks before the fight, a week earlier than normal. He changed the daily wake-up call from 6.30 to 5 and he enforced a 10.30pm curfew while they trained. Maury did everything Atlas asked of him and everyone in his camp seemed happy and content with his mental attitude and physical condition. Maury devoted his spare time to his two-year-old son Mikey and trained with enthusiasm. When it was time for Maura and Atlas to speak with the media, it was his trainer that did much of the talking, and he said, Foreman is a con artist. In the old days, he had the bully con, but in the ring in Zaire that night, Ali shredded that con. He destroyed him with a rope-a-dope. Destroyed him because for the first time in his life, Foreman's bully con did not work. And Teddy Atlas continued, and he said, Once that happened, there was nothing left in George but character. And George had very little there. You'll look at the film of that fight, that pirouette of his across the ring. That was not a knockout punch. He wasn't seeing the dark lights. That punch was just a convenient reason to pirouette. He submitted to Ali. 
So where Teddy may have been trying to demonstrate that George of 1974 may have given up, he was under no illusions as to the threat that the new revamped George would pose to his fighter. He said, you know why he's dangerous? Because 20 years later, he knows he could have taken that punch. He knows he quit. And he knows if he had taken the punch, it wouldn't have hurt as much as what he had lived with. So he, he knew what it was about. Many still doubted Atlas. The comparison of a 45-year-old George Foreman recapturing the title against a 26-year-old world champion in Michael Mora was just a step too far. Tim Kawakami of the Los Angeles Times agreed when he said at that point, I just thought that a middle-aged man don't knock out 25-year-old heavyweight champions. It's fair enough. However, George had become a fan favourite with many cheering on the older underdog and he was desperate to prove his point that age was just a number. He said, I just want to go out there and show the world at 45 and 55 is not a death sentence. We can do anything we want to do. In contrast, Double M, as Michael Moore was known, was more like the Triple D, who resembled the younger and meaner George Foreman, disturbed, disgruntled and disillusioned. While George was more than happy to speak with the public and promote the fight in his courageous way and happy-go-lucky way, Mora kept himself to himself and stayed quiet. But he did become increasingly less patient with, with Foreman's antics in the lead-up to the fight. And Mora reflected, I knew what Teddy told me. He, as in George Foreman, was a big con. And I just looked at him like, you're so fake. When it came to the media... Mora was unable to find the right balance. He admitted himself that back then I was probably very confrontational. Sports writers did not respond well to his answers during interviews and sports journalist Richard Hoffer recalled he was worse than reclusive. He was almost antagonistic to the point where you almost felt not knowing any better that it might be dangerous to be with him. Mora though was always clear in interviews. He wouldn't answer a stupid question. And as he said himself, I'm not going to put on an act or put on a little show for nobody. So with Mora's lack of enthusiasm and ambition to change the public persona, which was a lot like Foreman of old, he automatically became the bad guy. George Foreman's religious belief were now part of his persona, which influenced the sports writers to proclaim the bout as good versus evil. Foreman kicked off the ticket-selling campaign by saying Mora reminded him of one of my children, and he promised that if he fights the style he's been fighting, he will quit on me. After eight rounds, he will turn his back and quit. Then in the final press conference in Las Vegas, George took a remarkable turnaround from his usual bubbly personality when he announced that in a visit from the Almighty, he came to my room with some sheets on. The Sixth Commandment, You Shall Not Murder, had been relinquished for him in this fight. He was granted permission to unwrap and unveil myself, as he said, indicating that he was allowed to murder in the ring. Mora camp member Bigfoot Martin stood up shocked and he said, If you're really a preacher, you don't talk about killing folks. Teddy Atlas declared, This might have been the only time in boxing that a trainer ever prepared his fire for a press conference. I knew George would try and plant seeds of doubt and anxiety. And if you watch that documentary on Legendary Nights, 
you'll actually see Teddy Atlas having some confrontation with George Foreman. He actually goes right up to George Foreman as he sat down at the press conference table and he's like leaning into him and he's, he's they're having a bit of back and forth. And I think at one point, George Foreman says something along the lines of, oh, just go and make me a sandwich. And he just pisses Teddy off even more. Like Teddy wants to fight him. Teddy, you know, like was nowhere near the, the size of, of George Foreman, but he was willing to stand there and fight him in the press conference. It's quite a moment. We know what, Teddy Atlas is like if you know Teddy Atlas's story you know he is a bit of a hothead and he doesn't take any shit no matter who he's from it's a little interesting moment there if you haven't seen it already guys it's, it's quite quite a, a funny moment looking back in hindsight but the reality of the situation was George Foreman had gone from this happy-go-lucky chap and in the final press conference he just turned it on he started to try to get under the skin not just of Mora but of Atlas as well it did, and by the sounds of it, Mora's uh, camp, and I mean, talking about murdering someone in the ring, it's not acceptable, especially from Big George, who was a very bubbly guy, and I suppose this is his third chance, it's probably his last shot, and he's just trying everything he can to get under the skin, And but you're right, it is, uh, it's a funny moment when he sort of says, just go and make me a sandwich, because he's always eating, isn't he? He's always eating something, it's funny. On November 3rd, the United Press International actually printed the weighing results. It said uh, Michael Mora, champion Michael Mora, weighed in at 222 pounds and challenger George Foreman came in at 250 pounds at the official weigh-in for Saturday night's title bout. Now, on the night of the fight, Larry Merchant pitched his assessment on George Foreman to the cameras and he said, there are lots of sceptics out there who think that George now is more King Con." than King Kong. George hasn't earned his championship shot as a fighter. He hasn't fought in a year and a half, and on that suspicious occasion, he lost to Tommy Morrison. On the other hand, George is a star, and stardom, like age, has its privileges. There are many, many champions, and very, very few stars, and that's why he's here. And I think that was a perfect assessment from Larry. He always does it on the HBO shows. The amount of fights we've watched, he always comes out of that little little quotes. A great quote there from him. And, and George Foreman thought of nothing more than Mora. He said, I, I get up in the morning, I want him. I go to bed at night and I dream about him. He even called out his game plan before the fight. He said, I have no intention of throwing my power at him in the first, second or third rounds. My intentions are to extend him and make certain that when I hit him with one shot, he would not get up. Richard Hoffer wrote this for Sports Illustrated and another great bit of writing here. He said, six or seven pairs of fresh satin trunks hung in a dressing room, but George Foreman chose instead a much more photographed, much more notorious pair from his chest of memories. They were red, a little faded after two decades. Their seat shiny or so it seemed, from the last and only time Foreman ever skidded across a canvas. As soon as we realised he was wearing the same trunks in which he, he lost his title to Muhammad Ali 20 years ago, a fault began to materialise. We had been psychoanalyzing the wrong heavyweight. Not only did Foreman wear the same red trunks that he wore in Zaire, but in his corner, was Muhammad Ali's legendary trainer, Angelo Dundee, who had been in Ali's corner in Zaire, now known as the Democratic Republic of Congo. Foreman hadn't fought in 17 months since losing a 12-round decision to Tommy Morrison. 
Some actually worried for his safety, as many did for Ali 20 years earlier. One of Foreman's most dedicated followers was so worried that he stated he would leap from his ringside seat, storm the ring and stop the bout against Mora, and said, I don't care. If I'll get arrested, I won't see George get hurt. Tonight, live from the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, Nevada, HBO Sports presents World Championship Boxing as Michael Moore, WBA and IBF heavyweight champion, defends his title against the one and only George Foreman. It's scheduled for 12 rounds. 20 years ago last Sunday, an indelible memory in heavyweight boxing in Kinshasa, Zaire. After eight rounds of the unique and unforgettable rope-a-dope strategy, Muhammad Ali lashed out with the punches that floored George Foreman and ended his reign as heavyweight champion of the world. Just this past Thursday, Foreman weighs in again for another heavyweight title shot. His weight, 250 pounds. Heavyweight champion Michael Moore weighing in at 222 pounds. And this arena at the MGM Grand, set up to house as many as 14,000 plus, will be pretty close to full tonight. Overwhelmingly populated by ticket buyers who are hoping against hope that the 45-year-old baby boomer star George Foreman can pull an unlikely miracle and lift the heavyweight crown from a young and unbeaten champion. So now we get into the fight details. Now this took place on November the 5th, 1994, which was at the legendary MGM Grand in Las Vegas, Nevada. The 6 foot 2 inch Southpaw Mora was a 3 to 1 betting favourite and being the unified world champion of course holding the IBF and WBA straps he picked up a $7 million purse with Foreman collecting a $3 million purse. Legendary referee Joe Cortez called the action and the ringside judges were Chuck Giampa, Jerry Roth and Dwayne Ford. Mora's pre-fight record was 35-0 with 30 KOs and big George Foreman who stood two inches taller was 72-4 with 67 KOs. The fight was broadcast by HBO and aired as part of their long-running series HBO World Championship Boxing. Jim Lampley provided the blow-by-blow with Larry Merchant as analyst and Harold Lederman as the unofficial ringside scorekeeper. At the time, Foreman was a second analyst alongside Merchant, but since he was actually participating in the fight, Gil Clancy took his place. Now then, let's get into the fight. Now, rounds one to three started off as, in some ways, Foreman predicted. Mora actually controlled the pace of the fight from the very beginning and won the first three rounds convincingly, just peppering Foreman with his right jab and just keeping out of range. But every time Mora leaned forward to throw a punch, Foreman would stick out the jab in his face. Now whatever Mora did in them first three rounds, as Foreman said in the pre-fight build-up, he threw that jab. That was pretty much how those first three, there wasn't really much what you can say. I mean, moving into the fourth and sixth, this is the one thing with this fight, you'll get the pattern of, if you haven't seen it, Mora is pretty control so i mean what we are trying to do is we're going to try and bring in other people and what they say during the fight so so mora continued with his dominance in rounds four and five and then made the old man's left eye swell in the, at the beginning of the sixth round and foreman began actually hitting mora with a little left to the body to move him in position while sort of sneaking a right hand around the guard something you just notice he's sort of just 
very soft. It's, it's, I mean, the safe soft, nothing soft from Foreman. And Foreman actually explained that you go around him with the right, it makes him not here for a second. So he's, he's trying to hit the eardrum kind of thing. He's just prepping him. Now, although Mora was out of out punching Foreman for much of the contest, it was George who remained calm, applying constant pressure while subtly keeping Mora inside his front foot. Slowly, Foreman got into range, but so he could land that right hand, although he just didn't really throw it. He didn't throw it enough, hardly any, really. And Mora was throwing more punches and staying in control, yet Teddy Atlas continued to tell him that he must, must keep more distance between him and George. He says, listen to me, you're not going to have a real friendly corner. I'm proud of you, but you're not going to have a friendly corner if you keep making him go slow. You have to make him go faster. Atlas was right. Foreman was slow. And for most of the fight, he delivered soft jabs. It seems soft, not soft, without throwing many right hands. But when he did land, he landed one and a sixth. And it did. It does briefly stun Mora. You can see it. Although Mora's in control, there's a sneaky right hand. I think in the third as well, even. But it's just a moment where it stuns him. And, and Foreman said it was a setup. Mora, this is obviously later on, disagrees with Foreman. He said he didn't have control of the fight and he didn't have control over me. Now into round seven to nine, Mora continued to bank them rounds and was up on all the cards by the seventh. In fact, he was fighting better than when he took the title against Holyfield, always maintaining the pressure on Foreman, but staying just out of range of the big man's right cannon. Jim Lampley admitted afterwards, I can perfectly understand why Teddy was saying, do this and that between rounds four, five and six and seven. But Michael was thinking, why do I need to listen to anything if everything I do is working? What people don't remember when looking back on this fight is that up until the 10th round, Mora probably fought the best fight of his career. He was tremendous that night for 27 minutes. Larry Merchant remarks during the fight about the myth of George's power and how it was being exposed by Mora because he was taking them without what seemed to be much bother. Fellow commentator Gil Clancy spent much of his time during the cast doubting Foreman's capability as a legitimate threat. Foreman did admit that Mora was on top and he said he was doing everything right, but I was doing something he had not prepared for. Teddy Atlas could see what Foreman was trying to do and the threat he possessed and he said don't stay there because he's looking to set you up with one shot and then he will open up a combination if he hits you. Even Michael Spinks watched on and was confused with Mora's reluctance to move and he said I didn't understand why he as in Mora was being so courageous standing in front of a big man like that. Mora on the other hand felt comfortable at the time and he said I thought I was doing fine, but he's on the outside looking in. I can't see what he sees. He can't see what I see. But it was clear to see Mora had become more flat-footed and did later admit that he was actually out on his feet before the 10th. Yes, I mean, I think, you, I think the only two people that could really see anything was Teddy Atlas and George Foreman. Uh, honestly, I mean, when you watch the fight, there are moments where you sort of think, oh, he's could Foreman do it? But the more the fight goes on, you just think Moore is going to just go on and win it. But he is standing in front of him at this point. And, uh, and, and people are now saying, George's power is it's, it's not relevant. Well, after the ninth round, judges Roth and Giampa had given seven rounds to Mora 
and had it 88-83. Judge Ford's scorecard was a little closer. He had it 86-85 in the favour of the champion with former winning two additional rounds on his card. Knowing where this fight stood, Angelo Dundee told George Foreman just before he sent him out for that 10th round that he was going to have to take him out and win by knockout. And that the time had now come. Now, with Dundee's words obviously ringing in his ears, Foreman stepped out for that 10th round. And he actually recalled that I thought of Muhammad Ali in Africa. And I knew what it felt when he got into the ring and everyone was cheering for him. I could hurt him, but the crowd just kept him on his feet. Now, for the first time in my life, I was feeling the same thing. George Foreman reminisced on this famous 10th round. He said, the first punch I hit him with was a straight right. It was just a little too high. He didn't move out of the way because he was kind of stunned. I expected him to fall, but he didn't. I said, right then, I was going to lower it just a little bit. Now, that was the moment that he landed that big right hand. Right hand landed there. And another. And a right and a left. And suddenly Moore stopped punching and it's Foreman's initiative. And there's that competitive spirit of George is coming out again. He feels he's nailed Moore with a good punch, and he's a good finisher. He knows how to do it, but he's in with a tough guy. And remember, Atlas told Moore, George is going to try to find a moment here to steal the crowd and get them psyched up. That looked like it might have been it for a while, but now George stops punching again and takes jabs for his trouble. Foreman waiting in to set up a left hook, good and left another hook. left hook, and another left hook shot that missed. George, George is so tired, though. Jim, if he misses a punch, he goes completely off balance. Have to give him all the credit in the world, but again, he's a 45-year-old man in the young man's game. But look at look at that competitive spirit coming out now. Straight right hand landing for Foreman. He's had a pretty good round here in number 10. Again, Atlas didn't counter. Atlas, here we go again with the Atlas. Uh, Michael Moore is down. down. Goes Moore on a right hand. An unbelievably close in right hand shot. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. Down goes Moro on the right hand. An unbelievably close in right hand shot screen Jim Lampley. As the count reached 10, Richard Hoffer wrote poetically, as the roar mounted about him, it was a sudden sound as if the crowd had also waited 20 years for its release. Moro lifted his head up for a second, seemed to exhale and lay back down to sleep. The WBA title had just passed hands from a 26-year-old, 222-pound athlete in very good condition to an overweight middle-aged man who had been reaping the rewards of boxing tabloids, tantalizing headlines, but very little substance since he began his comeback in 1987. Jim Lampley, well, he couldn't contain himself. It's happened. It's happened, he shouted down the microphone. Foreman fell to his knees in the closest corner and prayed in public for the first time. He said, thank you, Jesus, he said. Mora and Atlas had worked on moving to his right to keep away from Foreman's big right hand, but Michael later confessed it was effective in the gym. Totally different story tonight, just couldn't do it. Teddy Atlas said he never saw it coming. Everything disconnected. It was devastating. This was a chance for him to grow. We got through it. Who knows what would have been in front of him, but we didn't quite get there. 
Mora admitted my body was completely dead. Foreman had regained the title he lost 20 years earlier, and he said, I knew it would be a knockout in the 11th round I fought. I knew if I could hit him with a right hand and get a little body, English, in it, he would not get up. With that in mind, he become the oldest boxer in history to win the World Heavyweight Championship at age 45. And he said afterwards, Now I won't have to be introduced as the former heavyweight champion of the world no longer. Hi, George. Congratulations. This is an impossible dream. Tell us your thoughts about what you just accomplished. Well, for all of my old buddies in the nursing home and all the guys in jail, always remember that song, When You Wish Upon a Star. Doesn't matter who you are, anything your heart desires can come to you if you just don't give up on your dreams. I'm so happy and I want to thank Seth Abraham because I called him up on the phone and said, you know, this fight can happen if you want it to happen. Seth argued a little bit. He said, well, George, it can happen then. So that man who runs HBO is a special human being. Thank you for the plugs, and I'm sure that and, uh, Seth appreciates him, uh, it. Tell him to give me a bonus, please. <laughs> George, you were having a hard time, it seemed. He was beating you to the punch, hitting you a lot of good stiff punches. You were hitting him with punches, and yet he was right there. What happened in the last round? Well, it all, I had the power this time. Bob Cook here. We trained about trimming down, but at the same time, was that carbohydrates and stuff he gave me? Told me I'd be stronger and I'd be able to eat Wendy's hamburgers all the way through training. So I was able to get my cheeseburger and at the same time have that energy for the last because nobody can keep taking those kind of punches he took for a five, six, seven, eight rounds. He's got to just tell off sooner or later. Were you ever hurt or seriously stung? He had power and every time he touched me on top of the head, it would just shake my body. The man is powerful. The fight was named the Ring Magazine Knockout of the Year and George Foreman received the Ring Magazine Comeback of the Year award. Now into the aftermath, and George Foreman continued to say, I planned it out for the previous three months. Nobody had any idea that I was setting this fight up all night. Well, Michael Mora had a different opinion in the aftermath of this fight, and this is what he said. He didn't believe what George Foreman was saying, and he said, Bullshit. Don't fake it. You got lucky. Don't sit there and say you planned it by no means. I was crushing him for 10 rounds. I don't have no bad feelings towards George. But don't say that you set this up because you're lying then. You're lying. Well, I don't know really. We'll speak about it after, I suppose, and our thoughts. But we're just going to wrap up their careers afterwards. And, and George Foreman, well, he was stripped of the WBA title after the Mora fight with the WBA executive committee meeting in Atlantic City rejecting Foreman's appeal to have his bout against the German Axel Schultz sanctioned. Foreman was hoping to go to court to contend the decision, but obviously he was stripped of it anyway. Foreman then hoped uh, for a potential super fight with Mike Tyson once uh, he was released from prison, but that failed to materialise. I mean, they've both spoke late years later. Tyson said he didn't quite fancy it. Foreman was saying he definitely didn't, so I don't think they really did fancy fighting each other. I don't know, maybe, I- I've not heard Mike since actually. I- I'm I think Mike probably would have taken it. Who would have won? I don't know. It's, it's a dream fight. Well, the WBA demanded that he face mandatory challenger and former world champion Tony Tucker at the time. He was actually promoted by Don King and Foreman was unwilling to get himself involved with King or his fight. So he refused to meet Tony Tucker and then Tony Tucker fought Bruce Selden and they went on to fight for that title. Foreman still held that IBF version. He then did fight Axel Schultz, won a controversial 
majority decision. Many felt that Schultz won that. And due to significant controversy in the decision, a rematch was ordered, but Fulham refused to give the German the match, a rematch. And as he was seeking other opportunities, he did say he wanted to fight more again or Holyfield again. Therefore, on June 28, 1995, Fulham relinquished the IBF championship, but was still recognised as the lineal heavyweight champion because he hadn't been beaten by anyone. He continued to hold that recognition until Shannon Briggs defeated him in 1997 in what proved to be his final fight. George Foreman ended his career with a record of 75 wins, 68 by knockout with five losses. His championship record was there. He defeated five opponents, four by knockout for world heavyweight titles, a record of five and three with four KOs and world title fights, six and four with six knockouts against uh, former or current world titleists. And in those title fights, he beat Frazier twice, Ken Norton, Dwight Mohamed Quarry, J.B. Williamson, or former champions, this is J.B. Williamson and Michael Mora, and uh, lost against former champions in uh, Mohamed Ali, Amanda Holyfield, Tommy Morrison, and uh, Shannon Briggs. So moving into Michael Mora's career in the aftermath of losing to George Foreman, he actually got a chance to regain a portion of the heavyweight championship in early 1996 when he was in line to face the winner of Schultz and Francois Bofa for the vacant IBF title. Bofa earned the victory, but a positive steroid test by Bofa caused in the result being changed to a no contest and the title once again being vacated. About was signed between Mora and Schultz, and in a close match, Mora was actually able to recapture the IBF title by split decision. Mora continued with his trait of changing trainers and fought under Freddie Roach in 1997 and then Isaiah Clark and Benny Collins. He defended the IBF title twice, knocking out Bofa on the same night that Holyfield knocked Tyson out to win the WBA title, then going on to win a close fight against Vaughn Bean. Mora then fought Holyfield, in a title unification fight and was knocked out in eight rounds, being dropped five times in that fight. Following the fight, he took a three-year retirement from the ring and finally retired for good in 2007, ending his career with a record of 52 wins, 40 by way of knockout, four defeats and one draw. His championship record? Well, he defeated 15 opponents, 12 by KO in world title fights. Five opponents, two by KO in World Heavyweight title fights. Ten opponents, all ten by KO in the World Light Heavyweight title fights. And overall, he had a record of 15-2 with 12 KOs in World title fights. A record of 4-2 with two KOs against former or current world titleists. And his notable victories were against Leslie Stewart, James Bonecrusher Smith, Evander Holyfield and Vasily Zhirov. Of course, his losses were against George Foreman and Evander Holyfield. And that wraps up the legendary tale of Michael Mora and George Foreman. I'm really interested to get into our thoughts of mem- and memories of this particular fight because now we've told the story again and we've told different elements to maybe what you didn't know about this story. I'm curious to know what your initial thoughts are as listeners for me, my opinion on this fight was George Foreman was actually getting beaten for most of the fight up until he started to land them big shots. Then one-twos started to come down the middle. And I'll look back on the fight yet again for about the 10th time. And you can see, as Mora said, he had nothing left in him. 
he couldn't move around the ring as much and he just seemed to stand in front of him and it just seemed like it was easy enough for Foreman just to lay them one twos in because he weren't going anywhere. It's like his it's like his feet were stuck in quicksand. He couldn't move. There was no lateral movement for him. And it just left it straightforward for George to just land them one twos. And the first one he lands on him in the fight, you can see it really stuns him. And I think from that point onwards, he doesn't recover. And he continues to get hit with the same shot until he gets put down and eventually counted out to lose the title. I think it's a real shame, really, for him that it all fell apart in that particular fight. Obviously, we've talked about his career and him recapturing the IBF title following that loss to George Foreman. But that's a huge loss, really. Must have been a real confident shatterer, if if you're asking me, personally, against a guy who's 20 years your senior, a guy that's supposedly fat and slow, a guy that really you should have beaten quite convincingly and was essentially beaten quite convincingly until everything just seemed to fall apart in that fight so I do feel for him in in that regard but I think you can see throughout his life and his career from what elements we have presented in this story that he had this sort of knack of going off script in his personal life outside of the ring and also inside the ring at many times and many occasions and this was one of them but this time he didn't get away with it that's right. And I mean, you mentioned the fact that he came out like he was on sort of a sinking sand, like quicksand or something. It was a bit like, I mean, Foreman for me, felt like he was underwater for so long. He was, he was, he was very slow for me. I mean, he, was, he looked old in there at times, Foreman. And I mean, the blueprint there was from Tommy Morrison. Foreman reckons he let him off the hook. I sort of can see where he's going with that, but Morrison beat him the way he's supposed to. And that's probably Morrison's best fight. And for me, that's what Bora did for pretty much those nine rounds. It was it was probably his best performance for nine rounds, without a doubt. And he just gassed and he stopped listening. I mean, fact is he's the world champion. You got your trainer, you're someone you trust and tell you Alex, just just stay away, keep your distance. You know, you've won this fight. You got one guy that had it a, a bit closer, but you don't need to stand there in front of him. I mean even Michael Spinks is sort of saying, why is he standing there? I mean, if you're going to look at another blueprint, look at Spinks against Larry Holmes. You know what I mean? That, that is it. That's how he should have fought. He did that for nine rounds. And he got caught. And I think that buzzed him bad. That first one you were saying, Sean, there. that first one buzzes him. And then he, he, it was inevitable. When he landed it, it was a, it was a beautiful shot. And, and that's, the, that's the beauty of the heavyweight game. I suppose in more respect, he's the champion. And, he stood there like a champion rather than running away. Because if he'd have run away for two rounds, he would have won it. I mean, let's be honest, he would have. I don't know. It is the, it's a tricky one. And I've got, I, I, it must be such a bitter pill to swallow for him because of the fact that he was an old man foreman, wasn't he? I mean, it's so true. I mean, it's devastating. You know, 1994, I was in Portugal. In the summer of 94, I was in Portugal. And then I remember we got Sky because I'm so excited <laughs> for the first time. And uh, I didn't watch this fight. I'm not going to lie to you and say I stayed out and watched it live. I didn't. Well, my brother did fill me in. He was like, George Foreman is just one of World Heavyweight title. And I was like, wow. I mean, I was like, what, 12 or something like that. But it was a mad moment. I mean, even it's a moment I remember. So it is a very historic moment in the, in the sport of boxing. And although the fight is so, it's difficult to really give our opinions. When we're trying to break down the fight by rounds, other than bringing other people in, it is pretty much the same though, isn't it, Sean? All the way through. More of dominating the fight, and then in the end, it's just wonderful finish. It's not your stereotypical 
legendary Gatti Ward or Barrera Morales, as he was pointing out earlier in the show. But what it does give you is that significant moment in boxing history. George Foreman at 45 winning the world heavyweight title when seemingly things like this seem impossible. I mean, he did it in the heavyweight division. Bernard Hopkins does it later on down the line, of course, as we know, a few years down the line from then on. But, you know, the fact that he's the only man to have still done it at this age, that record still stands, you know, the oldest heavyweight world champion. No matter what anybody says, that moment will live in boxing folklore long after George is gone, long after probably we're gone off this earth as well. And that's that's what he's done. He's, you know, people like might be looking at this in 50, 60 years down the line and looking at moments like this in the sport and saying, there was this guy, George Foreman, who basically retired, come back, did it all his own way and somehow managed to beat the young Southpaw heavyweight champion of the world who had a fantastic knockout ratio, by the way, and Stunning. he was able to he was able to beat him. He was able to beat him, and this is a moment that I will always look back on with fondness because it's just something that was not expected by anybody, and it's the reason why it became our opening episode for season three because the tale of Mora Forum was a tale that needed to be retold once more all these years later. HBO does a great job of it in their 25-minute documentary. Go and check it out on YouTube. But we wanted to tell a full and complete story of how this led up to where it did and the aftermath of it for both men as well. And we did that. Michael Mora captures the heavyweight title once more, the IBF version. George Foreman probably could have been involved in some other fights but there was obviously issues with sanctioning bodies and he loses his last fight against Shannon Briggs who was another great upstart at that point so it all has its intertwining moments throughout their careers and how it affected the heavyweight landscape in the aftermath of this which is why it makes it such a wonderful tale and a great pleasure to have sat down and done the opening episode for season three on Mora versus Foreman. I hope everybody's enjoyed it. And if you have, do go and let us know on social media at Legend Night Pod on Twitter or the BTR Boxing Podcast Network pages on Facebook, on Instagram, even the YouTube channel. When the video is up on there, you can leave comments on there about what you think about this moment in time, what your thoughts are on the fight what Mora's thoughts were on this fight, what Foreman's thoughts were on this fight. Do you believe what they were both saying in the aftermath of it? I'm really curious to know, even all these years later, what people do think about this moment and think about both of them fighters and their careers in the aftermath of this. It's been a pleasure, as always, to deliver another episode of Legendary Nights. And if you haven't already subscribed to us, please go and do it. Check us out on Apple Podcasts or Google or CastBox, or Spreaker, or Megaphone, or wherever you get your podcasts from, you can find Legendary Nights Podcast. Please do go and check us out on there. We hope you've enjoyed this first episode of Season 3 Legendary Nights, the tale of Michael Mora versus George Foreman.
Social Podcast Network.